So to introduce the minor prophets, we have to first introduce the prophets. And to introduce the prophets, we have to first introduce the Bible. So I'm going right back to the beginning with you. That's why you have this chart on the first page of your handout, Bible across the top, and then a flow chart going down from there. The Bible is split into two major parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Don't worry, I'll get deeper fast. It's just very elementary to start us off. We have an Old Testament and a New Testament. So, of course, our study takes us to the Old Testament side. So going down that side, uh, the Old Testament side, um, anyone know what the three parts of the Old Testament are? Of course you do, because you just already looked at your handout. Um, anyone know where to turn in the Bible to show what those three categories are? Yes, because you have really good eyesight and you can see the first verse listed in the box on the left. Luke 24, verse 44, which I'll read. Jesus says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of, the Mo- in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Those are the three sections. The law of Moses, so the law. Secondly, the prophets, all the prophets. And then thirdly, the writings. So that's why you see um, the three categories below the Old Testament there. Law, prophets, and psalms. Sometimes we use the word writings. Sometimes we use the word psalms. These are the more poetic, the more song-like parts of Scripture, the psalms. So sometimes they're called the writings. All of them, Jesus said, are about him. Uh, we noticed that already in our first verse, Luke 24, uh, 44, but we also noticed it in their next verse. Again, if you have really good eyesight, you'll see the next passage. Everything I'm saying is written out for you there. John 5, 39 to 40. You, this is words of Jesus. You believe the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they, the scriptures that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life, John 5, 39 to 40. So there Jesus repeats what he had said in Luke 24, that each section of the Old Testament points to Jesus. So as we study the Minor Prophets, please keep this in mind. Every one of the Minor Prophets points to Jesus, talks about Jesus, is about Jesus. So that's a quick introduction to the Bible, to the Old Testament, moving right along to the three categories, law, prophets, and psalms. So now let me introduce the prophets. Uh, When we read the prophets, we're often in pearl-hunting mode. Uh, We're looking for some gem, some uh, statement to lift out from the passage that we're reading in our devotions to put on our necklace, to put on our phone screensaver, to take us through the day, pearl hunting mode. And I submit to you that that's a poor way of looking at the prophets. And I, ha- I hope to help you with that in this com- these coming um, classes. The vast bulk of the prophets, though, if we're honest, feels like a confusing, murky mess. But every now and then we'll stumble across encouraging verses. So that verse jumps out at us. Such as if you're reading through Isaiah and you get to chapter 30, verse 15, you'll read, In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Isn't that nice? In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. That can go across your mirror, 
You can print it out and put it on your fridge, screensaver for your computer. But what did all of chapter 30 mean? And what section of Isaiah is that? And what does it have to do with ancient Israel and God's promises to us through Christ? Pearl hunting mode misses all that. Or here's another example. Perhaps you're reading in the prophets and you come across in in Jeremiah. You're reading Jeremiah because you love Jeremiah. He's a new friend of ours as a church. Jeremiah 23, you read this spectacular prophecy about Christ. Verse 5, Jeremiah 23, 5. I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Isn't that great? And then the question becomes, did you understand that within the chapter of Jeremiah 23 and within the section that's happening there in the prophecy of Jeremiah, hopefully with the help of our recent study together as a church in Jeremiah, you're better equipped for that. But what about the, the minor prophets? Do we have the equipment needed to read through them in, in your own time and devotions, let's say, and to understand them as a whole? Or are you just looking for pearls, looking for bumper sticker statements? What if the whole of the prophets were beneficial to us? Not just the standout statements, not just the bumper sticker worthy, mirror worthy pearls. If you're the one who likes to turn there, turn there. But if you just like to listen, I'm about to read 2 Timothy 3.16, which some of you probably have memorized. This is a core verse for us as we approach the minor prophets, as we approach the prophets, as we approach all of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. There I'm not using a pun. That's the word to benefit us, right? Beneficial, profitable for four things. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So it's profitable for teaching, What do we know about God, ourselves, sin, how the world started, where this is all going, cross, resurrection, what the church is all about, teaching. It's also profitable for us, secondly, for reproof. How did your life get off track? Where have you left the rails, left the road? To explain that to you. You're not doing the right thing. That's reproof. Okay, now what? It's profitable for the third thing, correction, to get back on the path. How do I fix this? The Bible is profitable, helpful to us for fixing problems, correcting sin and wrong. And then lastly, the fourth thing, it's also profitable for training in righteousness. How do I stay on the path? How do I live a godly life? How can I continue to do the right things? Because these four things are true about all of Scripture, every one of the minor prophets we're studying, it's true about them. They're beneficial for training, for correction, for uh, training, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Therefore, studying them is helpful to us as men and women of God because we may be complete and equipped for every good work. So I submit to you that if you've really never studied the minor prophets, there's something missing in your Christian walk. You're not complete. Because if it's really just redundant, then we have a poor view of Scripture. There's repetition in Scripture, but each part of Scripture is intended as a gift to us that's unique and necessary for our walk with God. And... What if every verse of the prophets was written for our instruction? Every verse. Not just the really nice ones that stand out to us and speak to our hearts. What if our minds are supposed to understand the whole book as it's written, in its context, and that in that way, every verse is profitable for our instruction? Now, if you're one who turns to, please turn to. If you just want to listen, I'm about to read Romans 15, verse 4. 
Romans 15.4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through the endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope, Romans 15.4. That through the endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I'm not asked for a show of hands, but which of us would like to have more hope in our lives? We need that hope. We've given that hope. It's a living hope. It's ours, but we always could use a refresher in hope. We need to have hope. What's our source? Where do we go to get it? In the scriptures. That all these things are written for our instruction, that through the endurance of the scriptures and the encouragement of the scriptures, we will have that hope. So, we um, understand the prophets to have an overarching pattern, all the prophets, so the minor prophets as well as the, the major prophets. Um, we see and on the chart on the front page there, you have prophets, and under that, major prophets on the left and minor prophets on the right. And of course, the rest of our course is going to be on the minor prophets. But I just want to make one more statement now about the prophets as a whole. This is true about all the, prof- all the prophetical writings. And if you have really good eyesight, you'll see what my main point is in three words. Just under the word prophets, it says this, judgment unto restoration. I'd rather you'd put that on your fridge than to put one little pearl that you found so that you start to understand and have the lenses by which you can see the prophets. This phrase, judgment unto restoration, I want to take a minute to explain. To understand the whole of the prophets, we need to see this overarching pattern that can be found in these three words, judgment unto restoration. It's not enough to just say judgment. And it's not sufficient to just say restoration. This simple three-word phrase captures the entire message of all of the prophets. If you need a peg on which to hang your coat, this is the peg. Judgment unto restoration. The pattern of this is the key that unlocks all the prophets, which are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So now I can introduce the minor prophets. The major ones are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Although Daniel is shorter than some of the minor prophets, he covers the same type of time and categories as the major prophets, so he gets included there. The minor prophets are the other 12 that I just listed, beginning with Hosea, which we'll study today. So the minor prophets, I like to say are the drama of the character of God. That's why I put on the top of your handout my words. The minor prophets as the God theater of the Bible. Imagine we're opening a little little theater and we're going to put on a play. That play represents God. It reveals something to us significant and important about God. So the minor prophets, why do we call them the minor prophets? If they're minor, that kind of indicates to our psyche that they're unimportant. And if you only have half an hour to study the Bible before you go to work, why not study the most important and not the lesser important things? So we probably are influenced a little bit at least by that, or at least we're thrown off by the title, the Minor Prophets. Where'd that come from? What does it mean? It came from Augustine. He was the the first one who gave the name, the Minor Prophets, to them. And all he meant by it was, they're shorter, you could say the shorter prophets, the longer prophets and the shorter prophets. That's pretty simple. 
it's a little bit puzzling, kind of like in the Reformed tradition that we are in, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, where we use the Westminster Standards. You have the Westminster Confession of Faith, and then you have the larger catechism. And what do you think you'd call the other one? The smaller, right? Larger and smaller are the two that go together. But we don't call it the smaller catechism. We call it the shorter catechism. It's just how it came to be. We know what it means, and so we accept the title Minor Prophets, and it simply means shorter. And we have to admit, other than Daniel being a little bit shorter than some of the longer ones, it's true. They're longer prophets. The major prophets are longer. The minor prophets are shorter. The shorter prophets all fit on one scroll, as it were. And I think it's important to understand in this introduction is that the 12 minor prophets, these dozen books, stand together as a unit. That's why I think it's helpful for us to have something of an overview, something of an introduction to them as a unit, as um, a series. You know how in, in the television world they call it a mini-series, or at least they used to? We could call this a mini-series of books that God gave us, these 12 minor prophets. A dozen shorter prophetic books. Uh, we could say a dozen short stories, a dozen plays. Uh, These books dramatize, as I'm saying, the character of God as few other places in Scripture do. They tell a story, an intense, dramatic story, and that story reveals something about God. I'll give you a couple examples. I'll finish my introduction, and we'll, we'll start off with Hosea. Some examples. Number one, God is sovereign. You'll see that in our study of these 12 minor prophets, that he's sovereign. It means he's really big. He controls everything. He's the king, the king of the heavens, the king of the earth, king of the universe, king of each prophet, king of each king and priest, king over each nation, not just his people. Uh, For example, we'll read about the locust plague. Joel, probably, Lord willing, two weeks from now. Well, today and next time with Hosea, if I don't finish Hosea, I'll go into that next week, and then we'll start Hosea or Joel and finish Joel the following week. But the locust plague, you may remember, was God's doing. You mean he's even controlling insects? Oh, yes. So many insects that it makes the sky turn dark. And he knows exactly where they are, and they do exactly what he tells them. He's sovereign. That message comes across huge, large, clear. Basically, he's in charge of the world in the past, present, and future. Everything. As Luther said, there's not one square inch of the universe that's not under God's direct, immediate control. He's sovereign. One example. I'll give you three. Number two, God is holy. Sharp words about sin will be read to you. As you read them on your own, you'll find very stark, sharp things said about sin. Why is God so upset about sin? Because behind that, he's holy. You have to understand, it has to come across to you how holy God is. The sharp words about sin are driven by an awareness that God's character is, in fact, three times holy. It makes no difference whether the sin is found in God's people or found in other nations. He is always reacting against that sin as an offense to him and calling for judgment from himself. He gives hearty, pervasive, sustained calls for repentance when we are steeped in sin. And this, again, is coming from his holiness. His holiness drives us to call us to repent. He's sovereign, he's holy. My third example, just an example here about what we'll see across the Minor Prophets. 
God is love. We'll see that especially at the beginning of our study of Hosea today. That God has great love for his people, despite what I just said, that he's sovereign and that he's intensely offended about our sin. He has a great love for us, his people. He expresses that love by sending his prophets with this message. The message of you're sinning, you're doing wrong, God is greatly offended, he's coming at you with judgment, now is the time to repent. That all is generated by God's love for his people. We see that again and again through our study of the Minor Prophets. He he shows us that sin is destructive to the sinner. Sin is destructive to humanity. Sin is destructive uh, against God and our relationship with God, and therefore it's an outrage to God. And all this message comes from the God of love. Boy, is that ever misunderstood in the world. It's the love of God that generates the message of confronting people with their wrongs and sin. God judges sin. In order to get his people to turn away from sin and turn back to himself and receive blessings. So we need these themes. We need these as individuals. I hope I'm not the only one in this course, this class today, who recognizes that I need correction from God, right? You and I sin. We run away from God in small ways that become bigger. And I think you'd admit to me that this kind of study is helpful for us as we look at our nation. The times in which we're living. We need This sort of God bringing this sort of message, his sovereignty, his holiness, and his love, a call to repentance as a nation. That we need to be reminded that God doesn't deal differently with some different moral code for a nation that has printed on its currency in God we trust. That's not sufficient. That just because we are calling ourselves modern America or a Christian or some calling it a post-Christian, even an anti-Christian nation, whatever it is, that God doesn't deal with our nation differently. He deals with it the way that he deals with all people through all generations. Take example, Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Proverbs 14, 34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach or disgrace to any people. I'm not here making political statements. I'm here making statements that are spiritual in nature, that are talking about God, who's the king of all kings. He's the God of every nation, including ours. And these are things that we'll be refreshed in as we study this. So a couple more comments, and we'll launch into Hosea. In this course, all I'm trying to do is provide an overview, an overview of the main themes of 12 special preachers of God of old. It's not going to be like our sermon series where we're digging into passage after passage of Jeremiah, for example. This is going to be fast-paced overview on purpose. So get yourself ready for that. Be prepared for that. Accept that that's the way we're, we're going about it. And I also want to warn you that these little books could have a big impact on you. You know how we've kind of fallen in love with Jeremiah? He's like a friend of ours now, and you can't wait to meet him? You're going to have 12 new friends. By the time this class is done, I pray, and they will influence you in good ways as they're meant to do. It's actually God who's speaking to us through these 12. Now, I have to say to you that perhaps these 12 books in your own personal Bible are really clean. I call them the clean pages. (laughs) Maybe they've got some serious neglect over the years that you've walked with God. They're the least read part of your Bible, perhaps, uh, while the most used parts of your Bible start to get grubby and may even have a certain odor to them, uh, maybe a little coffee odor. 
but your minor prophet pages are rather clean. It's okay. It's a new day. Let's start to study them. And I think what will help is to have this sort of orientation to each book that opens up the big picture of each book, the the life-changing messages from God found in these 12. And so as we read these 12, we will discover Scripture reading us. God knows us. There's really nothing new or different about humanity today than there was in the days that we'll study. Scripture reading us because God knows us and he will speak into our lives kind of like a doctor visit where you get probed and uh, evaluated in various ways. God will probe in our lives, our hearts, our thinking, and it won't always be comfortable. So disclaimer at the start. And the messages of the minor prophets are not always warm and comforting, but they are always healing and good. The Holy God notices the injustices in which we're involved. The Holy God notices the decaying religious practices that we've accepted as our new normal. Uh, The areas of pretending that tend to spiritually poison ourselves. And he shines the light there, and the, the camera of heaven aims right there. And he has night vision goggles. There's nothing hidden from God. Nothing left covered up when he's done. That's a good process for us. Now watch for ways to understand these books that make sense to you. You have to grasp this. So translate it to the way you understand it best you can. For example, when Eileen and I were training our children as youngsters in our home, we developed some phrases. And one of the phrases was, slow obedience is no obedience. I said go to bed now. Slow obedience is no obedience. It's a way to translate for me some of the messages we'll see. And you have different ways and things that are you're used to. Translate it to your way of speaking. Watch for that sort of instruction here in the Minor Prophets. And again, I just want to say how excited I am about studying these books. I invite you to join with me in our, our, our study. Uh, in the Minor Prophets are to be found some of the most beautiful, majestic, artistic, expressions in all of human scripture, all of human literature, I should say. And in these books, we will get a clear grasp of how God's chosen servants reacted to massive religious, massive social and even political changes that swept through their countries during their lifetimes. Regime change, we've taken to calling it. And so we have brothers and sisters in the world today who are going through regime change, We ourselves are finding turmoil in our area. We will see the devastating effects of corruption eating away at the moral fiber of the nations we study. And we'll receive breathtaking glimpses of God's sovereignty over it all that is invisibly comforting to us. And God's hatred of sin will come across. And his amazing love will comfort us still. So I pray that you, along with me, will be powerfully stabilized as a Christian living in a modern nation that is experiencing challenges, we're studying a dozen preachers of God who speak with one voice, and that's God's voice. So that's the front page. I introduced the um, second page to you, and I invite you to study, um, have that in front of you for the rest of today. Uh, I also supplied 
a timeline to help you to realize that there's going to be a split in the kingdom of God to a north and a south, uh, Judah and Israel. So if it helps you to see that in a timeline, if you're a timeline type person, that's there. <clears throat> and a different kind of timeline on the back page to place where each prophet is. So for today, let's get started with Hosea. See if you can find him. Uh, if your eyesight is really good, I, I thought about doing 11 by 17 and, and stayed at by 10 and a half by 8 and a half here. On the right side, with all those shaded boxes, if you go down towards the bottom, second column from the right, you'll see Amos and under him Hosea. There's Hosea. And now if you turn in your Bibles to Hosea, and keep your thumb there and your, your uh, back page of your handout in front of you. If you go to Hosea chapter 1, let me read Hosea 1.1. 1, 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Biri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So I want you to notice, as you look at your chart, that where you found Hosea, in uh, the bottom right quadrant of your page. I hope you found him near the shaded areas. What you find is the the kings of Israel listed there, right? Um, um, Jeroboam, starts with Jeroboam. But what we read in Hosea 1.1 about Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, where are they? They're in the left column under Judah. So what sometimes the writers of scripture will do is they'll give you a marker in time. And instead of giving a year, this year BC like we would do, they'll give you the year of the reign. It's kind of like saying, you know, the third year that Clinton was president. They'll say things like that. So what they're saying in Hosea 1.1 is this is the time frame in which Hosea was prophesying. That's all they're saying. So if you'll go home and study Hosea 1.1, and compare it to this chart, it'll help you kind of orient yourself in history to see where we are, and that'll set you up well for next week. That makes sense? But what I want to do with the rest of our time today, if you go back to page two, is introduce to you the book of Hosea in terms of its core message, the overarching message. So uh, let me start off this way. I'm going to put my watch here so I know I end at 10.20. This is good. Stay. Okay. So Hosea, if we think in terms of the first thing I said, that it's a, it's a God theater that shows what God is like. So imagine now you didn't just have 15 minutes of a class already. Imagine you just walked in and the lights are sort of dim and you got some popcorn and this is a theater and you came to see a show. And so the God Theater opens tonight. And somehow you, on opening night, got tickets. So here you are. You're able to be very close to the front. You settle in. The show's about to begin. The curtain opens. There's nothing on stage. There's no props. In walks a man from stage left, and he says, God told me to marry a prostitute. Whoa. Does he have your attention? That's quite a play. You're not sure that you want such a racy play? Uh, You're glad the children aren't with you, but you're interested, right? He has your attention. God and a prostitute in the same play? Can you imagine a more riveting introduction to a short story? And that's what happens at the beginning of Hosea. Look at verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom. 
I'll read the rest in a moment. Let me pause briefly to answer three common questions about the book of Hosea in order for you to better appreciate this short story about the prophet and the prostitute, about Hosea and a woman named Gomer, and how it fits with the minor prophets, as we've already just introduced them, how it fits with the whole Bible, these three questions, and then I'll continue telling the story. Number one, why is Hosea, and this is on your handout, why is Hosea the first of the minor prophets? The prophecy of Hosea is the first of the minor prophets, not because it was written first in chronological order, because actually it was not written first. Hosea is presented first not because its messages were spoken first, because its messages were not spoken first chronologically. Rather, the prophecy of Hosea comes first because it's first in importance about the message of God through the 12 minor prophets. For our walking with God through this world, it's absolutely crucial that we understand something about God from the minor prophets. And this is the main thing in the minor prophets. Wait and see. So it's first because it's first in importance. Introducing the core concept. Question number two on your handout. Why is the message of Hosea so important? Aha, I think your mind was already going there. The message of Hosea is most important of the minor prophets because Hosea is the second greatest story in the whole Bible. No Christian can doubt what is the greatest story in the Bible, the story of the birth, life, suffering, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. The story of Hosea is second, the second most important story in the Bible, precisely because it anticipates that top story. It points us to the main story of the whole Bible, the story of the gospel, the story of Christ Jesus, and Hosea does so in the form of a very well-known, very public story. For example, if you were to say these names, Hosea and Gomer, to anyone who's well-educated around the world, over the last few thousand years, they would all know the story. You just say Hosea and Gomer, they know the story. How did that happen? That happened because God wrote the story to us, to the whole world, and he encapsulated in this beautiful set of 12 short stories as the leading part of these 12 books to give us the story of God's love, the story of God's challenge to us as sinners. Third question, third common question. Who wrote the play or told the story of Hosea? Was a real person. This is not some allegory. There was a real man who lived on earth a long time ago, and his name was actually Hosea. He was a messenger from God, what we call a prophet of God, a preacher. He lived actually during the reign of these four kings listed in verse 1, four kings in a row. He was the oldest, Judah was the oldest and most southern of the two Jewish municipalities. So those common questions answered. <clears throat> Hang on a second. Where's my other pages? Huh. Well, you'll see something else on your handout next. 
And I just want to read those. I think I, I copied the wrong pages. So two essential points for a correct interpretation you see there. Number one, the times of Hosea are similar to the times in which we're living. I already made that point. And secondly, the story of the book of Hosea is about God's relationship with us. So that's all that I wanted to make. If I had more to say there, I'll bring it in next time. Let me get back to the story. You've entered the theater, right? You sat down. Uh, someone came in from stage left as soon as the curtain opened and said, God asked me to marry a prostitute. So one day when this main character, Hosea, was very young. He was a young man. God came to Hosea to ask him to do a very difficult thing. He said, I want you to marry a woman who is going to be unfaithful to you, but I want you to be faithful to her. She will disgrace your love, but I want you to keep loving her anyway. The reason I'm asking you to do this is because we're together going to present a show in our theater. And the show, or short play to the nation, is your marriage. And your marriage is symbolic It's an object lesson to show the nation something very important about me. And in the story, our mini theater, you will have the part of God, Hosea, you're going to play God, and she will have the part of the people of God. And the reason that she will run away and be unfaithful is that her bad behavior exactly matches the way that my people have been acting in the spiritual union I've established with them. You, Hosea, will continue to be faithful to her in your marriage, to show that I've continued to be faithful to my people even though they dishonor me and even though they embarrass me and even though they're crumbling and hurting themselves. Hosea was told this. So imagine yourself, Hosea. (laughs) God comes to you with this new idea. It's never been told before. What would you do? Would you agree to this mini play? Would you go and marry the woman? And so the question becomes, would Hosea obey? And the answer is yes. Hosea did obey God and married a woman who was a prostitute. Her name was Gomer. And sure enough, she proved to continue to be unfaithful to him, as we'll see as our story unfolds. So verse 2, now I'll read the whole, whole of verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Did Hosea obey? Well, yes, verse 3 tells us. Hosea went and took Gomer, the daughter of of Deblime. The word took there means married, you know, took as his wife. Uh, now, since that marriage now became the demonstration of unfaithful sinners to a faithful God, there might be a place for the next level, huh? For the children of that marriage of the story, right? Sure enough, verse 3 continues, Gomer conceived and bore a son. Now, before we continue unfolding our main story with the figure of the Reverend Hosea and his pastor wife, the practicing lady of the night, Gomer, and their growing little family. Let me take a moment to unpack my other two uh, crucial points a bit more. Because we can already detect that this compelling story will have a big impact on us. We need to make sure the impact is made in the right way in our lives. And so that, for example, we're not imitating this by going to marry homeless people or prostitutes, Right? So what is the interpretation for us across the years and after the cross of Christ? It's a compelling story, but it's a certain kind of story that we have to clearly understand first if we're aiming at the x-ray machine of our own hearts. So we sense that we'll be touched by this story, touched as much as we maybe have ever been by any other moving play or novel. So we're accustomed to taking in such stories as entertainments. You know, you read through a spellbinding book. You set it down, and within days you forget. You view the movie. You cry. You 
are so scared you have to go to the bathroom. You enjoy the movie, and within minutes you go to bed and sleep and forget all about it in the morning. We dismiss these powerful stories because they have very little to do with our lives. And so the caution here is before we start to really get into the story, to realize how much it's relevant to your life. It's a story being told by God in his word to us as his people in order to build us up in our faith. So we have to pause and realize these two essential things that ensure the force of the story hits us correctly. Here's the notes I was looking for. Number one on your handout, the times of Hosea are similar to times in which we are living. So the lessons of the story are the lessons we need to hear today. Hosea's very name means salvation, and he lived at the same time as the prophet Isaiah. Both Hosea and Isaiah prophesied to Judah in the south, and at that same time, Amos was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. It's from these three prophets, Hosea, Isaiah, and Amos, that we learn what were the characteristics of the age. We could say, as another author has said, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was both. And I would say today it's the same. We have the best uh, improvements in medicine, would you admit? We have the best technology ever. We have the best communication, the best transportation. But we have the worst of materialism, the shallowest of spiritual devotion to God, the worst application of God's principles to life in the areas of marriage, What is a marriage? What is a man? What is a woman? What is having children? What is life? When does it begin? When do we protect life? Living holy lives? Personal security? Violence? Could I go on? We have the worst. Hosea, Isaiah, and even the prophet Amos show that the hearts of the people were empty. Their walks with God were shallow, and there was breakdown of society all across where they lived. And in those days, just like I'm saying in our days, the rich and the powerful tend to influence things for their advantage. And the religious activity of many people is just for show. God has blessed his people materially and spiritually, but God's people have begun to live for pleasure. Just like today, we're wealthy. We have more access to Christian books more access to Christian audio recordings, more access to Christian materials than ever in the history of the world. But we're chasing entertainment and not using it. The people had begun to abandon hard work, morality, and integrity. I think we could say the same for today. And people were not living for God. They were living for themselves. Ouch. It's true about our fellow citizens. And if we're honest too true about ourselves. At least can we agree these things can be said of our generation? So I said two points, and then we'll get back to the story. The second point is, the story of the book of Hosea is about God's relationship with you. It really is. Let's rip off the bandage right now. I have something to tell you. I've been waiting till now to tell this to you. Are you ready? In the mini theater about Hosea and Gomer, You're Gomer. I'm calling you a prostitute. (laughs) I thought you might drive me out at this point, (laughs) out of the building. In the story, you're the prostitute. That's right. In your spiritual walk with God, in your personal relationship to God, this story is an accurate description of you and me as the spiritual prostitutes, meaning that we've chronically 
perpetually been unfaithful to our wonderful, faithful creator. Now, wait, 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 okay. Before we get into the story further, we have to cover something. Are we expected to believe that the holy, holy, holy God, as Isaiah calls him in chapter 6 of Isaiah, the God of the Bible is asking one of his own holy prophets to come into a marriage union with a woman who has been living and working as a prostitute, are we expected to believe that that actually happened? In other words, is this story an allegory or is it real history? It's real history. If God would send his own son to die on a cross for us and be buried, would he not ask his prophet to represent the message of the gospel to his nation and take this woman in? If Hosea's story cannot be true in your mind that actually happened in world history, you may object that God should not ask a man to marry an unfaithful woman, then neither can the story of salvation itself be true. It actually happened in world history because the story of Hosea to Gomer is precisely what Christ did for us. He married us. We are the bride of Christ. And then... We did all the wrong and filthy things that we read about in our study with Gomer. And yet he purchased us for himself to be a bride who is, Ephesians 5.27, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but rather holy and blameless. From Paul's pen, yes, the New Testament. And describes the pure marriage between Christ and his church. And here's the kicker. Christ, the great husband of the church, has done all this for us, even though he knew in advance that we would turn out to be unfaithful to him. Yes, the prophet Hosea was a real guy. And yes, God actually commanded him to marry an active prostitute. What about you? What about Christians? What's the application for us? Is God asking us to do this sort of thing? No, of course not. But God sometimes does lead his people to take actions that afterward involve them in great complicated situations and incredible suffering. Doesn't he? For example, going into missions. The pickles that our missionaries have gotten into. For example, taking a certain job. Did you know when the first day of your job started all that it would involve for you? For example, Jesus. Called by God to be the Redeemer, to be the Messiah for us, to become man. And afterward, great suffering came into the life of Jesus, did it not? We read that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief because God doesn't think like we think. Again, Isaiah 55, God doesn't act like we act. It's often in these particularly unusual circumstances that offend our sensibilities into which God leads his people on purpose. And it's in those situations, as we'll see in the story of Hosea, that God accomplishes his greatest victories and brings the greatest praise to his own name. So let me just say this. If God has allowed tragedy to slip into your life, or if he does in coming days, if he allows you to live in a country that's declining, crumbling, or in any way resembling what we read about in the Minor Prophets, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have sinned against God in a way that deserved this. What it does mean is that God superintended your life 
in a way is to demonstrate to others the love of Christ and the character of Christ in you by how you live in the situation into which God has called you. Can you be a shining light where you are? Isn't that what we're called to do? Back to our story. As our unfolding story now proceeds, be prepared for the impact on you. Be alerted that you may be refreshed by the message of God's love for you through your difficulty and perhaps how poorly you've handled your difficulty thus far. What's the story of Hosea if not a story of ourselves as members of the body of Christ, the church, the very bride of Christ? God took us in when we were doing wrong and messing everything up and he knew that we would forsake him. He opted to love us and purchase us for himself through Christ's atonement. There's nothing that can snatch us out of his hands of safekeeping. So no matter how messed up the world is, no matter how you've made it worse by your actions, words, or attitude, no matter how dirty or guilty you may be or feel or perceive that you are, be encouraged that God has covenant-keeping hold on his people and will never, ever give up on you because you belong to him. Would you like to hear the rest of the story? This young couple, Hosea and Gomer, had a baby boy. Yay! Congratulations, a baby boy, Hosea, and his prostitute wife, Gomer. And what's one of the first things that happens whenever a young couple has a baby? They need to select a name for the baby, right? How will Hosea call his baby boy? Well, because this baby boy is part of our theater play, the name of the baby will have huge significance for our unfolding story. The name will be significant because the name will reveal something about God within our play. So Hosea 1 verse 4. The Lord said to Hosea, call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I'll punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So Hosea and Gomer had a baby boy whose name hinted at the doom that God would soon send upon the king. The town named Jezreel was well known for violent bloodshed. It'd be like saying, yeah, you had a baby boy. What shall we name him? Ground Zero Manhattan. That's his name. No, 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 no. His name is Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor, that's his name. Jezreel? Seriously? To name that baby boy Jezreel was a name that means scattered. Everybody ran away. It was close to the name Israel. If you look at it, Jezreel, Israel. So if you look at it in Hebrew, it's really even closer than as you see already in English. And perhaps Hosea originally thought that God meant to say Israel. I'm sorry, excuse me. What did you say? Certainly you said Israel, not Jezreel, right? I mean, that's how bad this name is that it maybe could be misunderstood at first. No, no, God meant Jezreel. Like brewer or sewer, no, you don't mean sewer. Did you say sewer? No, you mean brewer. Right? The word of judgment from God. Jezreel? God's revealing this in the baby's name that God was soon to scatter Israel throughout the world for her unfaithfulness. The principle here is that when we neglect our walk with God, we get in trouble. And one expression of God's love, hear this, one expression of God's love is chastisement or judgment. Just as the love of a father for a son will cause a father to discipline his son who disobeyed, so we see God's love in this form. So a second child is born, a daughter this time, but we're not told that it was Hosea's daughter. Uh-oh, what's the hanky-panky now? Right, by this time, already Gomer had been unfaithful again. 
And the daughter was not Hosea's daughter. How do we know this? Because the word him is missing in verse 6. Look at verse 3. It says she bore him a son, but verse 6 says she bore a daughter. It just says she bore a daughter. The word him is missing. Bore him a daughter? No, it just bore a daughter. The child became living proof of the invasion of sin into the marriage. The joy of fatherhood for Hosea was immediately and deeply clouded. What's surprising already is that rather than Hosea taking action right then and there to divorce her, which was his legal right, Hosea did instead what the Lord told him to do because this is the next part of the play. It's revealing something about God. What will God do now? Hosea stayed with Gomer. Hosea received this daughter as his own daughter. Hosea named this daughter and started to raise her. When God told Hosea to name the daughter, which was itself an action of ownership and acceptance, Hosea obeyed and obeyed the daughter. And the name for the baby girl? Are you ready for this? No mercy. In Hebrew, lo ruhama. I probably have that in your English translation. Lo ruhama is borrowed from the Hebrew. Lo means not. Ruhama means compassion. Not compassion. Not loved. No mercy. God is saying, we're going to call this child not loved because the time is soon coming when the sin of the people will cause God to have no pity on them. Listen as I read it all put together in verse 6. And the Lord said to Hosea, Call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. The sign regarding the second baby cuts deeper than the sign regarding the first baby. To lose a war and lose a kingdom is bad, but to lose the compassion of God is a desperate place for a nation or a family or a person to be. The compassion of God, the mercy of God, is more than just a state of our minds. It indicates what God has as a disposition towards us, what he would do for us. The compassion of God is a course of action of God. Whether God will spare or whether God will not spare depends on whether he has mercy or whether he does not have mercy. This is huge. It gets applied to the people of God in verse 7 where God declares his decision, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by spear or by war or by horses or by horsemen. It sounds strange to us because we're so used to reading about God's love in the Bible. Take Psalm 136. More than 25 times we're told repeatedly, the love of the Lord endures forever. God is merciful. God is compassionate. God's love does endure forever. And what is God to do when we won't turn from our sin? Then God's daily mercy is withdrawn from us so that instead God turns us over to our silliness and our foolishness until we learn our lesson the hard way. And that's how God related Israel. The name no mercy, no compassion is a perfect description of these moments when God treated them that way because God had written this all down for us to know how it's all going to go with our relationship to God. So the theater's mini-play presses forward now in verse 8, but I'm out of time. We'll pick up with verse 8 next time. After she weans the child, will she have another? Come on, you don't get many cliffhangers in your life, right? You need another cliffhanger. You have it right in front of you. I invite you to read. The rest of the story. Yeah, you know, uh, restroom break, find children, get a bulletin, time for church. Let's pray. Our Father.